Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode two of series seven of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Many people I speak to in our field tell me that storytelling is the last mile problem in people analytics. If you don't tell the story in a compelling way that resonates with your audience, then it is highly likely that no action will be taken. That means all your hard work in collecting, cleaning and analyzing data will be a waste of time. My guest today is Cole Nussbaumer Naflik. Cole honed her skills in Google's fabled people analytics team and now helps people and organizations become better at storytelling with data, making sense of data and weaving them into compelling stories that drive action. In our conversation, Cole and I discuss why good storytelling is so important when it comes to data visualization, tips to improve your storytelling with data skills. We also talk about how to adapt your story depending on the audience. And we also look at whether AI and automation is a threat or an opportunity for HR. This episode is a must listen for anyone in a workforce or people analytics role, HR business partners, and indeed any HR or business professional who has to communicate data as part of their role. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 7 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Cruncher is a self-service solution for workforce reporting, people analytics and workforce planning. The best thing about Cruncher? It's simple. The solution is designed to guide HR professionals through their data to discover the real story. Cruncher works in over 35 countries worldwide, with large companies that typically have more than 20,000 employees. Learn more about guided people analytics and their unique adoption strategies at cruncherapps.com. That's crunch, letter R, apps, all one word, dot com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Cole Nussbaumer Naflik, uh, CEO and founder of Storytelling with Data, to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Cole. Thanks for having me here, David. Well, it's great to have you. Fresh off the fresh off the plane from uh, yes, from, got in at five yeah. o'clock this morning from wow. the states. Okay, well, we'll, we'll we'll keep you alive with some t- testing questions. Awesome. Um, so welcome to the show. Can you provide listeners with a quick introduction to your background and what you're doing currently? Sure. So my name is Cole and I am CEO at Storytelling with Data, where our goal is to try to help people make graphs that make sense and weave those into action inspiring stories. So probably the part of my background that's going to be most relevant for your listeners is the time that I spent on the people analytics team at Google. So I joined Google back in 2007, which was right as we were starting to centralize analytics within people operations. Uh, Prasad Seti had been brought in a couple of months before I started. The analytics folks had previously been, you know, a couple analysts in compensation, a couple analysts in benefits. I thought, well, let's get them all together and increase the power of that group. And so when I joined, this was back in 2007, the team was tiny, which was great because I got to touch all sorts of different things. And it was a super exciting time to be part of Google People Analytics because everything we looked at, we were looking at for the first time. And so, you know, studies on what makes a manager effective, how do you actually measure that, uh, quantify it, hold people accountable to it, or what drives when someone's likely to leave the organization? How do you predict who's going to leave? What sort of intervention? 
interventions can you test out to change those behaviors? Also the opportunity while at Google to develop a course on data visualization and travel to our offices around the world teaching people how to make good graphs. And one of the things that stood out to me in doing that was I'd be in these classes where there'd be salespeople and engineers sitting side by side. People of totally different skill sets, different backgrounds, different reasons for wanting to be communicating with data. I came to realize that the skills that are useful in this space aren't specific to a given role or industry. Rather, these are skills that pretty much anyone can use to have greater impact in their day-to-day -day work life. So back in 2013, I left Google to start storytelling with data. And we spend most of our time teaching workshops where we'll go into an organization, spend half a day or a day with a team, really getting into how they communicate with data and using that to teach really straightforward lessons that everyone can use to improve how they communicate with data. Perfect. So, you know, and why is good storytelling so important? when it comes to graphs and data visualization and communication. If you can't tell a story with that data, you're not going to be able to get an action, yeah. the action that you need. I think there's a tendency, particularly for highly technical folks or folks who come up from a technical background, to want to just put all the data out there. Uh, but that's a challenge, right? Because uh, we're assuming our audience knows the context well enough that they can figure out what's important. We're assuming they're going to take the time to do that. And so a lot of great work actually gets lost yeah. because we don't take the time to put the words around it to make it make sense, to focus attention where we want people to look and, and do these things uh, so that the ideas that we have in our head actually come across to the person on the other end. Yeah, I've heard it described as the last mile problem in, in people analytics, presumably any type of analytics, actually. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and it's something that so many organizations and people analytics teams, if we're just talking about people analytics teams, overlook. Because, you know, even if you'll be working on the right business problem, you can yep. do some great analysis and great get some great, generate some fantastic insights. But as you said, when it comes to then actually getting action taken, the message gets lost in a myriad of different graphs and charts, which actually quite hard for people to understand if they're yes. not technical themselves. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we lose sight of because anytime we're working with data, we're working on our project, we make a graph, we know exactly what that graph means, mm. right? Because we're the ones who made it. But it means we actually have a lot of tacit knowledge in our heads that we have to put out there for others to be able to use. And so we can do things like use color sparingly to direct our audience's attention to where we want them to look, uh, put words around our data, not only to make it clear what our audience is looking at, but what do we want them to take away from it, right? Put that takeaway into words. Yeah. It's, it's, let's go back to your time at Google. I mean, obviously, Google is, is, is rightly seen as one of the pioneers in people analytics. It wasn't the only organization doing it, but I think it was the first organization that started to openly share some of the work that yep. it was doing and some of the projects that, that you referred to. And I think it's probably fair to say that when you started there back in 2007, that you know HR wasn't really renowned for being data-driven, probably even in Google. Um, <laughs> That's a fair point. So, so when you came to put that, that visualization course together, you know, how did you help your HR colleagues first 
to improve their, their, their data story selling skills? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we did was forming partnerships between the analytics team and the folks on the analytics team and the HR business partners. Because what we found early on was when we tried to you know, work in our bubble and come up with what we thought were fantastic, brilliant things and push them uh, on to the HR folks who then would work with their partners, that that didn't work so well. And oftentimes it was because there was context that was really important to know. And that's what the HRBPs, the business partners, bring to it. Mm -hmm. And so over time, we developed a model where we had points of contact uh, working with each of the areas of business and their HR folks. And I actually, I played that role for a number of years for the sales organization and then later for YouTube, where I sat as part of the HR team uh, for that area, which meant I was able to understand what's going on in the business, what's happening, uh, what programs the HR folks were driving for that part of the business, get that context, be able to bring back to the analytics team, and then also be able to take some of the research and projects that the analytics team was working on to the business, where it would make sense and when it would make sense. So we moved away from any sort of blanket, everybody gets everything, to figuring out how do we partner and do strategic things in the right areas where there's going to be reception for it and where it's going to make sense given the other priorities of the business and the HR team. So you paid the role, which is you know, popularized today, has been called a translator role. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's taking some of those business challenges and questions and converting those into, or helping the team convert those into analytical yeah. uh, projects that they could work. And then the same thing, taking some of the insights from those analytical projects out and helping the business understand them and then take action on them. Exactly. And that, that translator role is one that I've found my way into everywhere that I've been. And I think it's been a combination of my my background scholastically is uh, applied mathematics and business. And so I can speak both languages and and help translate for each other and help people figure out what are smart questions to be asking if something doesn't feel right and to help the technical folks with the communication pieces that sometimes get overlooked. I had a colleague, a friend of mine who we shared an office for a number of years, a brilliant guy, um, PhD smart, right? Uh, Which meant he had a hard time speaking plain English to people. So we'd sit and say, okay, say, you know, tell me what you're trying to get across. Okay, say it in fewer syllables, say it in fewer syllables, right? Take that word out. What other word could you use? And that's all part of that translation. And it's not about dumbing anything down, but it's about thinking about who your audience is and how you can speak in ways that are going to be accessible and easy and not make people work harder than they need to. And making data visual is another way to do that. Uh, Because when we can take data and we can make it something that other people can see, it allows us to explain it in better ways and really inform in ways that when it's just the data becomes difficult. And so that's part of the power of turning numbers into pictures. So, Cole, if you had to just give three tips to listeners uh, on how to improve their storytelling with data skills, what would they be? So my first would be to be really specific about who your audience is and design everything you're doing with that audience in mind. Because I think too often we design a communication, right, a PowerPoint deck, say, for ourselves, for our data, for our project. It's really easy to do. It's actually a much harder but more effective thing to step out of ourselves and think about 
how do we design this first and foremost for our audience? Which means thinking about things like, who are they? What do they care about? What keeps them up at night? Yeah. Uh, because if we can frame what we need our audience to know or to do in terms of those motivating factors, then we get their attention and can get our message across. So I think first would be audience. Second, and I mentioned this earlier, but would be think about where you want your audience to look and create sparing contrast to achieve that. And the easiest way to do that is sparing use of color. Yeah. And if we think about not designing anything to be colorful, but rather working in grayscale and then using color really intentionally as a cue to our audience that tells them where they're meant to look, that can be really effective for more quickly getting our audience to the point that we're trying to make. Yeah. And then thirdly would be words. Use words. I think sometimes when people think of data visualization, they think it should all be numbers and pictures and that words have no place. But words play a very important role in making those numbers and pictures understandable for yeah. our audience. So that means we need to title, right? Every axis should have a title. If there is a key takeaway, which if you're at the point of explaining something, there should be, put that down in words, right? Yeah. If we do those three things, we think about our audience, we design with them in mind, we use color sparingly to focus attention and words that tell our audience why we want them to look there and what the takeaway is, that's a successful scenario for communicating effectively with data. Perfect. Well, I was fortunate to attend one of your workshops a couple of years yeah. ago, and I do remember the tips around colour, and I have actually taken that forward since. Awesome. And I do seem to get more speaking gigs, so maybe maybe it's, <laughs> it works. You know, maybe I owe you, owe you some commission or something. But so, as I said, fortunate to attend a couple of years ago, and, what, and one of the other things that really struck me during the the, the masterclass that, that you ran was around the narrative arc yeah. that you took from classic storytelling. Uh, and how you applied it to presenting data. Yep. Um, I think that would be something our listeners would really enjoy hearing about. Sure thing. So if we think of a story, stories typically follow this narrative arc where you start out, there's a plot. Tension is introduced. That tension builds in the form of a rising action. It reaches a point of climax. There's a falling action, a resolution. Turns out we are hardwired to remember stories that come at us in that form. Challenge is the typical business presentation doesn't look anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. Typical business presentation follows a linear path where maybe we start off with the question, right? What did we set out to solve for in the first place? Then the data. Where did we get it? What did we do to it? What assumptions did we make? Then the analysis. What were the actual statistical methodologies we employed? And then finally, our findings or a recommendation. This is the typical path of a business presentation. And that's because this is the path that comes most naturally because it's the path we typically go through when we are analyzing data. But it is a very selfish path because at no point along that typical linear path do I have to give any thought to my audience. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the biggest shift that happens when we think about our business communications, not along a linear path, but reframing them, making use of this narrative arc. Because to have an arc, you have to have tension. And it's not about making up tension, right? If you, there's no tension, you'd have nothing to communicate about in the first place. And also, it's not the tension that matters to you, right? It's coming back to audience. It's the yeah. tension that matters to them. If you can identify that, you can get their attention, build credibility, and drive them to the action you need. Uh, so we teach the narrative arc, we teach it in our workshops, both books go into this as a framework to be able to use as another way to think about how you might communicate data-driven findings. 
So leading on to that quite nicely is how you adapt your story to the audience. And yeah. that's a question. And then I presumably, if you've got a people analytics case, for example, you might be presenting that to different audiences at different times, yep. which might need you mean you might need to find a different tension, presumably. Yes. So, or nuance the tension. Yeah, perhaps. and that's exactly right. Because too often what we do is we craft a single communication that's met, meant to meet the needs of many different audiences. And the challenge when we do that is we actually don't meet any of those <laughs> needs as clearly as we could if we just divided it into multiple things. Now, it doesn't mean we completely rework things every time, but it means when the stakes are high, then we want to be specific about who the audience is and how we can cater to them specifically. And so, yeah, it means the tension will change as you have different audiences for your data stories. And presumably also looking, do your homework about your audience yes. and understand their, their technical um, appreciation. That's not the right word, but their, their technical how, knowledge, yeah, for example. Yeah, exactly. How they want the information, what level of detail yeah. they need, what questions they're likely to have. The more fact-finding you can do about your audience, the better. And if, if that's not possible, or if you're feeling not prepared in that area, have a colleague play devil's advocate or play a really tough audience member. Oftentimes talking through things, getting clear on what assumptions you're making, how big of a deal it is if those assumptions are wrong, um, and playing through those roles can help, um, uh, help make the case more strongly. And obviously that implies that you need to take a little bit more time yes. over putting your presentation and visualizations together. And it's funny, isn't it? We spend a lot of time finding the right business questions to work on. We spend yeah. a hell of a lot of time doing the actual analytics. But to, is, and this probably leads on to the next question. A common mistake is that people don't spend enough time on actually communicating those results. Which is interesting to me, right? And I think it, it's the piece that gets skipped or gets the least amount of time devoted to it because you can't skip the other pieces, right? You have to figure out what the mm. question is you're trying to solve for in the first place. You have to go gather the data and do all of that. But after you do all of that, you can just throw it in a graph and call it done. But that graph or the communication, that's the only part of everything that your audience ever sees. And whether they should or not, it has connotation on the level of attention to detail you spent the rest of it. And that is the point where your work is either going to succeed or fail. Uh, and so it deserves at least as much time and attention as those other parts of the process. And the more time and attention you can spend there and be thoughtful about how you design your graphs, be thoughtful about how you weave that into a narrative, the more success you'll have in getting your point across and actually driving action based on the data, which is what we want, right? There's this tendency to just want to put the data out there, but that's a dangerous thing to do because your audiences are faced every day with a ton of data. So when we give them more data, it's really easy for them to say, oh, that's interesting, and they move on to something else. Or worse, they ask you for even more data, right? You yep. get this death by data cycle. <laughs> Whereas if we take it to the next step, we say not only audience, here's the data, but here is something you should do with this data, mm. right? Here's an action to take or a discussion to have or some options to consider. Now your audience has to respond to that. Mm. And even if they disagree, it starts a conversation. And it's a conversation focused on the right sort of things. And it's a conversation that often gets missed when we stop at the step of simply showing data. Yeah. So always thinking it through full course of not only what do we want to inform our audience of, but what do we want them to do now with that new information. And the more thoughtful we can be about this, the better position we put ourselves in for success. And you talked about the rising tension. That suggests that actually don't be afraid to use, build some emotion, make people feel 
oh, we've got to do something to sort this out. Yeah, to the extent that's appropriate, right? Given the scenario, given your audience, yeah. right? And if we'd gone in front of the engineering team with a highly emotional story, that probably wouldn't have worked so yeah. well. With the engineering team, we had to go in with the facts and the statistics and the methodology. And we actually had to take them through that linear path I that I talked about earlier so that they'd be bought in, right? And actually, we had to do more than that. We'd have to get them involved in our study yeah. design so that we'd have advocates uh, once we got to the output. But yes, for a different audience, it'll call for something different. And so being uh, cognizant of that and designing with that in mind. So what are some of the other common mistakes you see around data visualization storytelling? We've talked about the color, we've talked about not you know, not recognizing the audience and nuancing it. But. I think one mistake I see or one trap I see people fall into is to try to show something in a new novel way. Uh, and, and what happens is oftentimes novelty, maybe it grabs our attention, but makes the actual data harder to get at. Uh, there's a reason that line charts and bar charts are common. It's because they're actually really easy for us to read, and most mm. people have encountered them before, which means you face less of a learning curve with your audience for getting your information across. So I am a big believer in, you know, for the majority of things, you're going to be looking at lines and bars. Uh, every once in a while, there might be a use case for something else. But And in every graph out there, most graphs out there, I should say, have the perfect use case. The challenge is just we get too far away from that perfect use case and things get really tricky really quickly. We're actually going to be looking at an example in my workshop later this week that's from the HR realm. Uh, it's comparing... Uh, reasons for leaving from exit surveys and the uh, exit interview. And it's fairly straightforward data, but the original version of it is this bubble graph where they're different <laughs> sizes and they're everywhere and they're different colors and it looks kind of cool. And, and somebody took a ton of time to put this together. But you sit there and you grapple with, what, but what does the size mean? But what does that mean? And you spend so much time talking about the graph and trying to decipher what you're looking at that it's easy to not ever step back and think about, but what's the data say? What does it yeah. mean? What are you trying to tell me? Exactly. Yeah. And in this particular example, we turn it into a simple bar chart and you can, in a couple of seconds, have a conversation about, hey, wait, this one reason for leaving is really high and has suddenly become high. Why is this? What do we do about it? What does it mean for the business? How do we turn it around? And now you've shifted the conversation entirely. We're no longer are we talking about the graph and grappling with what it means. We're talking about, well, what does this mean for how we run our business and how we should do that going yeah. forward? is a really strategic shift to be able to make and it's mostly by reaching for the tried and true sorts of graphs yeah. so I'd say that's another thing don't don't go novel or crazy with your graphical form because you can yeah. or because that seems like because you've good got a new idea. tool to use yeah yeah, yeah I, I i must admit you see it sometimes when people put it bubbles are the the, the best example i think it's a great example <laughs> and they're all different colors yeah. like, which one am i supposed to be looking at first right. of all and what does it signify if it's over on the right hand side but it's small versus on the left hand side and big you know yep. so it can be yeah as you said quite confusing sometimes and yeah. and it and if people are really non-technical at all and just want they just want the insight yep then that confuses it and people switch off presumably as well. Then that's your audience gone. Yeah. And that can actually be a good thing to do is anytime you're showing data, step back from the data and put what you want your audience to know into a sentence. Say mm. it in a sentence. Mm. So oftentimes if you can articulate that sentence, then you can iterate through different graphs to try to figure out which one is going to help me make that something my audience can see. And if you're struggling to come up with a sentence, then you're not ready to communicate it yeah. yet.
So, Cole, you 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 teach people how to tell stories all the time, but what's your favorite story and what and why? Oh, that's an interesting question. So, I don't know if it's my favorite, but a story that I use a lot during teaching is Red Riding Hood. I like Red Riding Hood because there there are versions of it that are told all around the world, and everybody, for the most part, can remember it. So it's this fantastic evidence of the power of story and the power of repetition and how we can use those components when we're communicating with data as well. So that's one of my go-tos. And there's definitely a rising tension yeah, in that story. Yes, yes, there is some tension. <laughs> sure. And a big bear wolf. And and then who do you who do you learn from? So who have been people either you've worked with or, or people that you you know or have seen out there that, that help you with the storytelling part? So this actually may be a surprising answer or an unexpected one to your question, but I learn a ton from my kids. I have three little kids and the way they learn and put the puzzle pieces together of the world around them, I actually learn a ton from them when it comes to how do you teach others. And going back to some of the simple things, right, pen on paper and drawing or um, asking questions as a way to get to know the world. We actually, uh, the lead story that I did into our latest podcast uh, for Storytelling with Data talks about this method of questioning to understand the world that was inspired by them. So I, I spend a ton of time with my kids, which is probably part of it, but I learned a lot from them. Yeah, I, I definitely learn a lot from them, particularly, I guess, in terms of how you have to break something down to explain yes. it, yep. which I guess is similar to some of the stuff that, that we've been talking about. Absolutely. And actually, that, that, that led me to another question, something else I remember about the masterclass you did. You, you like to Actually, let, let's use pen and paper and yes. post-it notes to help build the story, yep. and, and you can swap things around there. I don't know if you want to talk. A, yeah, a and, and we that. still do that today. Some of my favorite tools are post-it notes, right? Little tiny sticky notes, because when you're planning a presentation, you can brainstorm, right? You can just get the ideas out of your head and out into the physical world. Then you can start rearranging, moving things around, grouping things together, taking things out. Also, if you can get feedback at this early stage, right? Go to a manager or a stakeholder and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. It's rough, but is this generally the direction we want to go? Because if you can get the feedback at that point that says either, yes, that's spot on, execute, or no, let's actually go in this other direction. Yeah. Now you've not wasted a ton of time and can get uh, be a nice way to get early buy-in from others as well. So I'm a big proponent of low-tech planning post-it notes, blank paper. Uh, we also do an exercise with the big idea worksheet, which is just to get really clear and succinct on the message that you want to get across to your audience. And I should mention that all of these exercises and much, much more are included in my latest book, Storytelling with Data. Which we are definitely going to cover in a minute. I'm, I promise you on that. And, <laughs> and I think too many people, I see it, I mean, I do it myself sometimes. You, you, you know you've got to do a presentation, whatever it is. Yeah. And you start going to PowerPoint. Yeah, and you jump straight to the tools. And then you realize it takes... It takes longer, right? Longer, yeah. Because oftentimes what we'll do is we'll start with some slides that were already there, yeah. or we'll grab some that we, you know, we'll take some time to make one, and then and then you form this attachment. Yes. It becomes difficult. <laughs> so when you can plan in a low-tech way, it actually speeds up the whole yeah. rest of the process. And keeps you out of this uh, rut of trying to force things to fit because you have them or because you worked hard to create them and uh, being thoughtful about the order that you take your audience through, how the pieces fit together. Yeah, it can be useful to do in a low-tech way. It feels like it slows you down, but it actually speeds everything up. 
Well, we, you've talked about the new book. So your first book, Storytelling with Data, was published in 2015. That's right. And there's certainly a well-thumbed copy sitting on my bookshelf at home. I love it. Um, very close to my desk. Um, you've recently released a follow-up. Yes. Um, Storytelling with Data, Let's Practice. Yes. And for the video, there it is, um, which just has come out. When we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you explained that the book is constituted of, of three parts. Yes. Um, can you share that with listeners? Yeah, it's, it's, absolutely. So Practice is part of it. Yeah, practice is key. For me, practice, I mean, practice is how you get better at anything. Uh, but storytelling with data practice is key for sure. And so the new book is all exercises. It follows the same path as the original book, but each chapter is divided into three sets of exercises. There's practice with Cole, where I pose a scenario that you're meant to solve on your own, but then I also go through my solution as a way of giving a ton more examples and case studies and insight into the behind the the scenes thought process. Then the second exercise section within each chapter is practice on your own. So this is similar sorts of canned exercises, but without any prescribed solutions. So yeah. These will be useful for you know, the individual who just wants more practice, managers who want to assign uh, exercises to their teams. We have over 100 universities around the world teaching from the first books. So this will be useful for university instructors. And then the final exercise section is practice at work. Okay, you've done this in theory, you've done it with some canned examples. Now take a project you are facing in your day to day and let's break it apart and figure out when you should get feedback and how you should get feedback and who you should ask. Let's set good goals around this stuff. Uh, there are exercises about creating a culture that's conducive to good storytelling and a whole host of other things. Each chapter ends with a series of discussion questions that can be fantastic in a group setting uh, just to get people continue to think and talk in the language of effective data storytelling. So it's not a book that you sit and read. It is a hands-on experience. It's like a workshop in a book, if you will, uh, that uh, if you take the time to go through all these exercises, you will be a master data storyteller. And practice is so important because you can only learn a certain amount from theory and storytelling is clearly a skill that you need to practice to get Absolutely. better at. And something else that we've put together to help aid in practicing and skill development is the storytelling with data community. So as I've mentioned, I'm a strong believer that to get good at this stuff means to practice and to get feedback and to talk with others who might be facing similar challenges or have come up with interesting solutions and mm. discover and be inspired by great work. The Storytelling with Data community has been crafted to facilitate all of these things. So it's an online community. It's free. The whole goal is to help support people around the world for improving the way that they communicate with data. And so anyone can join. That's at community.storytellingwithdata.com. Highly recommend that. Well, we'll make sure that goes out in the, the sort of collateral we put around with the podcast as Great. well so people can find it easily. Um, the future. Yes. What do you see as a future of storytelling with data? What impact will technology have? I believe, so there's been a strong focus on technical skills and programming skills recently, which are definitely important, but I think it's been a little bit at the expense of the other side of things, right? There's tons of investment in data scientists, but those data scientists are going to be no good if they can't then communicate what they've done to someone else. And so I think the next wave is going to be 
people who can make sense of technical analysis and translate that, right? Coming back to this idea of the translator that we were talking about earlier, that those skills are going to be in hugely high demand. So people who can hone those skills or are naturally inclined in that area are going to succeed. So in th thinking about now, if you were to start a people analytics team now in a company, so your head, head of people analytics, you, would you be looking to hire as many translators as data scientists? Yes. Yeah. And I'd be looking to develop the ability of the translation piece in the data scientists. Yeah. Because I think it's a hard thing when you have people who are totally separate from the depth of analysis to do the communication. The, my view is the way it works the best is when you've got people in technical roles who then can also communicate. But certainly a, a mix of skills uh, across skill. people can help too. And sometimes for the data science, getting out into the business and actually meeting the yes. customer, whether that's the employees yes. or the actual end customer, can actually help shape your work. Absolutely. You? Anything that you can have that will help build context around what you're doing and the implications of it. Absolutely. Okay. So that, that leads on to the, guess, uh, the question that we're asking all our guests on the show at the moment. AI and automation, do you see them as an opportunity or threat to HR? And you can answer nuance to, to your expertise and go beyond HR. Sure. Well, keep it to HR, though. I think. So, uh, <laughs> Please. opportunity, for sure, uh, that we should embrace and, or figure out how to harness it to an opportunity, I should say. I think specific to data visualization and communicating with data in HR, what AI is going to allow us to do is, I don't think it's going to replace the brain anytime soon, right? And that means people who know the context and are able to communicate and understand the depth of analysis, that's going to continue to be an important skill. I think where AI is going to help us get faster and smarter is on serving up interesting things from the data so that we're able to find the stories faster. Yeah. And then we can spend more time, as we've talked about, on that communication piece to make sure that the important pieces of the data, that the important stories are coming across. Perfect. Yeah, I, th I think there's a, certainly within HR, there's a perception that all this technology means HR is either going to disappear or be shrunk considerably. I think that the actual storytelling skills and the softer skills it probably become even more important. Yes, I would agree. Okay. So you talked about the, the book and obviously we talked about the community. Yes. Um, you've created a real movement behind what you're doing. Which I think is We're fantastic, on it. <laughs> um, and I know our, so. I know our listeners are always eager to learn. You know, what are the ways that people can keep in touch with you? You've talked about the community, but by all means, repeat that again. Yeah. But what are the other ways that people? Can keep uh, in touch? So I'm active on Twitter. You can follow at Story with Data. We have a LinkedIn page for Storytelling with Data, where we post things daily, articles, tips, tricks, and that sort of thing. Uh, our website, for sure, has a wealth of information. That's StorytellingWithData.com, and I definitely recommend signing up for and checking out everything that we have to offer at the community. And that's community at storytellingwithdata.com. Perfect. Cole, it's a pleasure as always to speak to you. Thank nice you very much for being you. a guest on the show. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest learning and news on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Dirk Yonker on why people analytics needs to behave like a startup.
So don't miss that one and I'll see you next time.